Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. I'm going to be starting in verse 14 in the reading and covering verses 15 through 17. And if you're there and willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's holy and living word. Paul writes, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So reads God's word. You may be seated. The title of this message is A Healthy Church. There's a story told that goes like this. There's a picture hanging crookedly on your living room wall. It bothers you, so you walk to the picture and push up the side that's hanging low. You take a step back, squint your eyes, and decide now the picture is straight. And you leave the room feeling good about getting things to look the way they should. The next day, you walk through the living room and are surprised to see the picture is once again hanging as crookedly as it did yesterday before you straightened it. You conclude that you must have failed to get it really level the day before. Again, you push up the side hanging low, step back, eyeball the picture, and decide this time you have it right. The next day, to your great frustration, you find the picture hanging crookedly again. You're sure you had it right the day before, so you push it back straight and walk away, wondering whether it will be crooked again tomorrow. The next day, it's crooked again. You start to think to yourself, what's going on? What's going on? Then it dawns on you, perhaps the wire on the back of the picture isn't centered on the wall hook. So you take hold of the picture, slide it to the left a fraction of an inch, and then level it. The next day when you return to the living room, you find your picture hanging straight and true the way you left it the day before. And a picture will stay level only if it's centered on the hook. Without that, any corrections are temporary. And in the same way, until we center ourselves in Jesus Christ, no matter how hard we try to straighten out our lives, they'll eventually fall out of line. And so what is the point of that story? Christ must be central. He must have first place in everything. And so we ask the question, why? Why must Christ be central and why must he have first place in everything? Because Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. This is a key theme in the book of Colossians. To give you some context, Paul's writing from prison to a church he's never visited to a church, to people he's never met before. It was reported to Paul by Epaphras that false teachers were attempting to dilute the gospel and distort the gospel with all kinds of various false teachings, which included legalism, Greek philosophy, superstitions that were of the pagan nature, mysticism, and all various other kinds. Their teaching was subtle. Their teaching was that Christ was prominent, but not preeminent. He was a substantial starting point, but not supreme and sufficient. In other words, Jesus plus, not Jesus only. 
And the danger was that the false teachers claimed to have a certain special knowledge that made them more spiritual, more full, and complete in Christ. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, like he does in many of the epistles, he counters that by an all-out articulation of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You don't add to Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. He's all and in all. He begins chapter 1 by telling us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. By him and through him and for him all things were created. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the church. Christ, Paul says, is supreme. He's preeminent. And so Paul, he can say in verse 17 of chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Christ is Lord over all. And as believers, we're united to him. And as a result of being united to Christ, we are already full and complete in Christ. Christ is enough. Everything is found in him. I believe it was John MacArthur that said, Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. You need nothing else if you have, if you possess Christ. He's above all and all that we need. And so Christ must be on full display in every area of your lives and in every area of the church. He must be central. And that means Christ alone is to have first full and final authority in the life, in your life and the life of this church, which is the Lord's church. Let me say it this way. The gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ must show up both in your life and in the life of the church. And so if you're taking notes, write this down. The lordship of Christ must control church life. The lordship of Christ must control church life. And we're going to see this expressed in three ways in our passage. First, you will be ruled by the peace of Christ, verse 15. Second, you will be transformed by the word of Christ, verse 16. And third, you will be motivated to live in the name of Christ, verse 17. So the first way we'll see the lordship of Christ control church life is that you will be ruled by the peace of Christ. Verse 15, I will read it again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So let's begin by looking back to verse 14, which is where I began the reading this morning, this afternoon. Paul says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, Paul says, is the binding power that unites the church together. We know that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love is an action. It's others-centered. It's sacrificial. Love gives itself for the welfare of another. And, you know, Jesus, he didn't just say he loved us. He demonstrated it. So the questions for us are, do you love one another? And how are you demonstrating that love? Because love is much more than just expressing it verbally. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 4 with me. Paul, in that verse, he thanked God and was overjoyed because he heard of the believer's faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they had for all the saints. Everything 
must flow from love and be done in love. And my prayer is that you abound in love more and more. And so what happens, what happens when love is present and lived out? You'll be united together in perfect harmony. So now we need to ask another question. What needs to be true in order to maintain unity among one another? And Paul tells us in verse 15, to maintain perfect harmony, believers are to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. When love is present in a church, it will result in peace. Someone said, when Christ rules in the heart, his peace will rule in the fellowship. Remember, in Christ there are no distinctions, no barriers, because you're one in him and he is all and in all. And if Christ is supreme in your lives, you will be able to love each other and get along with one another for his glory. And here's where peace comes in. Here is where peace comes in. If there are differences, divisions, conflicts, strife, you must let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And this is easier said than done. Because in our flesh, we're not peacemakers. In our flesh, we're not peacemakers. We're peace breakers. We may all desire peace, but we may not all desire the things that will make for peace. I'll say that again. We may all desire peace, but we may not all desire the things that will make for peace. So may you heed Paul's command here to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word rule here, it refers to the activity of a, of an umpire. And an umpire or a referee renders verdicts in contested situations. So in other words, they're the deciding factor. Paul wants the Colossians and us to make peace the deciding factor in our relationships with each other. So what does that mean? It means the peace of Christ should be given preference over competing concerns and interests. Christ's peace must give the final decision regarding Christian conflicts. It should be the final arbiter of everything you do in this life and how you perceive everything in this life. So without without sacrificing principle, believers should, as Paul says in Romans 14, 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So brothers and sisters, may you pursue the things which make for peace rather than trying to prove your case. May you build up one another rather than break down or tear down one another. May you see the best and not the worst in each other. May you keep short records of wrongs and quickly and completely repent and forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. The church needs to be filled with people who pursue what makes for peace. People who let the peace of Christ be the determiner in their relationships, conflicts, and tensions. And so, we need to really take this to heart. Peace shouldn't just be present in the church, it should dominate the church. Listen to the words of Psalm 2911. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And like unity, you don't establish this peace. Jesus has established it. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Christ himself is our peace. 
The goal is to maintain, to maintain it. Ephesians 4.3, Paul tells us that we should be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So let me rephrase that in different translations. Are you eager? Are you diligently in the NASB? Are you endeavoring, New King James? Are you making every effort, the CSB, to maintain unity? What causes disunity, disagreements, and fighting over preferences? Brothers and sisters, forfeiting peace is easy. Forfeiting peace is easy. Your problem with others is really a problem with yourselves. And like any sin issue, it would be wrong to seek to fix it yourselves. Every sin issue is a heart issue and requires a gospel solution. And so at the start of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians of their union with Christ. He moves on to tell them that their practice must match their position. Their behavior must match their belief. And since they've received Christ, they must reflect Christ in their attitudes and actions. And now we can add on to that in their relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Letting the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts is difficult, but not impossible. The saving work of Christ not only brings people to God, it brings people together. So we need to handle, handle with great care your relationships with one one another. You'll have differences. And I'm not saying you're to deny your differences for the sake of some form of false uniformity. I'm talking about true unity, where commonality in Christ is preeminent, where Christ is central. The peace of Christ needs to be true in this church, and it needs to be practiced in this church. And so what kind of peace is Paul talking about here? We need to keep in mind the peace believers have is both objective and subjective. Objectively, we're at peace with God, no longer under the wrath of God, because all has been spent on Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's objective peace. Then there's subjective peace. The peace that we experience because of the reality of our, our objective peace. An example of this is Jesus' words in John 14, 27, where he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This subjective peace is what Paul is referring to here in Colossians, and we know that by the corporate nature of this passage. However, we can't separate it from the ground of our objective peace. So, brothers and sisters, if there should be peace anywhere, it should be in the church. If there should be peace anywhere, it should be in the church. And if peace is ruling in your hearts, it will seek peace with brothers and sisters. Psalm 133, verse 1. 
Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. What makes a church pleasant? What makes a church beautiful? Not beautiful buildings or beautiful decorations. This says what makes a church beautiful is unity. There's a song by the Gettys called, Oh, How Good It Is. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruit of his presence here among us. John MacArthur, commenting on this passage, says, In a healthy body, harmony prevails among the various parts. Christians, having been reconciled to God, enjoying peace with him through Christ, should naturally, should naturally live at peace with one another. So what rules your heart? All sorts of things can come to mind. Perhaps doubt, anxiety, fear, bitterness, anger. We must remember you, you're at peace with the God of peace who gives you his peace. And you need to let that peace rule and reign in your hearts. Next, Paul reminds us that we're called in one body. We are called in one body. I'm called. You're called. We're all called in one body. And this is truly remarkable. Why is this remarkable? Because we have no right to be called. Ephesians 2.13, we were once far off, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.21, we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Colossians 2.13, we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Christ's lordship has brought about unity. We are one with Christ and one with each other. We're united with Christ forever, which also means that we're brothers and sisters forever. And so we're not only called by God savingly, but called to live a holy life, which includes letting the peace of Christ be the decisive factor and regular regulator in our relationships. Listen, Christ accomplished this peace, and you have been called in one body to have his peace rule in your midst. So when you display the peace of Christ, it proves that you understand the peace and reconciliation to which Christ died and to which you were called in one body. I'll repeat that. When you display the peace of Christ, it proves that you understand the peace and reconciliation to which Christ died and to which you were called in one body. Look with me at the last part of verse 15. We find a second command given by Paul. It says, and be thankful. There's a story of a little boy who wanted his mother to pay him for all the services he was rendering in the home. He left her a note that read, for washing the dishes, you owe me a dollar. For cleaning my room, you owe me a dollar. For hanging up my clothes, 
you owe me a dollar. For mowing the lawn, you owe me a dollar. Mom, you owe me pay up. And so he printed a bill for her totaling four dollars on the, and put it on the kitchen table with the, and put it on the kitchen table and gave it to her. The mom, the mother came and put four dollars on the kitchen table with a note of her own. The note simply said, for carrying you nine months and being sick as a dog, no charge. For staying up all night with you, night after night when you were sick, no charge. For working overtime so that I could get you those special tennis shoes, no charge. For entertaining your friends when you wanted to bring them over without notice, no charge. Signed, your mother who loves you, total zero dollars. And after reading the note, the boy realized he had lost sight of the goodness of his mom. He had turned a love relationship into a business deal. He had said to his mom what a lot of us, what a lot of God's children say to him. What's in it for me? Pay up. Thankless or ungrateful people live as if they deserve something. On the other hand, the most thankful people are those who realize God's goodness and that they, they deserve nothing. So that when they do receive something, they're thankful because they understand they didn't deserve it in the first place. There's a hymn that goes, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love. For every day I have on earth is given by the king, so I will give my life, my all, to love and follow him. Thanksgiving should flow from a heart that recognizes that Christ, the prince of peace, has brought you peace. He's enabled you to have peace, and may you let that be an incentive to maintaining peace. Someone said, God's giving deserves our thanksgiving. So a healthy church will be expressed, not only that you'll be ruled by the peace of Christ, but secondly, verse 16, you'll be transformed by the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The peace of Christ rules where the word of Christ dwells. In verse 16, we have a third command given by Paul. The word of Christ is to dwell in you richly. Your lives are to be controlled and filled with the word of Christ. And this is how you grow. This is how you grow. As the spirit of God works through the word of God, you're transformed. And the word to dwell means to live, to take up residence, to inhabit, to be thoroughly acquainted with. Let the word of Christ be at home in you richly, meaning abundantly or extravagantly. And the parallel to this verse is found in Ephesians 5.18, which says to be filled with the Spirit. Here in Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so when we look at both passages, we see that being filled with this word produces the same blessings as being filled with the Spirit. Meaning to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Word. And it's been said, show me a person who lives the Word of God 
I'll show you a person who's filled with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God should take up residency in you. It should live in you. In in Canada, where we currently live, we live in a townhouse with a very narrow parking space. And every time I get back home from from church or from the market, I park the car in that very narrow space, and there's a sign in the top right corner that I see every time I park my car. It's, it reads, owner-occupied, owner-occupied. The word of Christ should occupy you like a homeowner occupies a home. It should be a chief resident. And so, is Christ settled in every room of your house? Do you desire the word of God? Do you hunger to read the Bible? I once read about a young blind girl from France who was given a New Testament and raised letters. She was so excited and read it so much that the tips of her fingers became very callous so that she could no longer feel the characters. She started crying because now she couldn't read the Bible at all. And as she wept, she pressed the scripture to her lips and was surprised that her lips were more sensitive than her fingers. And she could actually read with her lips. So she spent the night moving her lips along the raised letters of the Bible. Job 23.12 says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Do you have an appetite for God's word? Someone said, the Bible is meant to be bread for our daily use, not just cake for special occasions. Mine, mine the inexhaustible riches of God's word, brothers and sisters. Let the word of Christ saturate, permeate, let it impact you. Let it inform every plan and decision that you make. Let it govern and guide your relationships. Let it lead you into holy living. It's been said, knowledge isn't everything. Knowledge isn't everything, but everything rests on knowledge. You can't live something until you know it, and you will not live it until you believe it. The Word and the Spirit is sufficient for your Christian life. And so if the Bible is neglected, if it's unopened, we cannot expect to grow as Christians. A former classmate of mine from seminary during a chapel service said this, only a word-saturated Christian will endure this trial-saturated life. Only a word-saturated Christian will endure this trial-saturated life. The word of Christ should dwell in you richly. And also, the word of Christ should dwell among you richly, among you all richly. A healthy church is a word-centered church. The Christian life, we know, isn't meant to be lived alone. And you don't grow as Christians alone. In fact, none of us can make it alone. We need the family of God to help us grow. Let me say it this way. Our Christian lives must not only be founded and grounded in Christ and his word, but it must also be surrounded by God's people. Look around you. You're all members of God's household, bought and bound together by the precious blood of Christ. This is the importance of the local church. You must be committed and involved in one another's lives. The church is the bride of Christ. It's precious. 
And so it must be precious to you. Next, we learn that we're to edify one another with scripture. We're to edify one another with scripture. Paul gives three ways how the word should transform and govern the church. First, teaching. Second, admonishing. And third, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And an important note, this is something everyone in the church is to do as members who are called in one body. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, Him, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In that verse, Paul refers to church leaders and pastors and elders. However, in our verse, Paul's speaking to believers in the church. Teaching and admonishing with the word of God isn't just for pastors or church leaders. It's for all Christians in the local church. You're to let the word of Christ dwell in and among you richly. And as it does, something happens. You're able to teach one another. This refers to the positive instruction from the word of God. You encourage and counsel one another from from scripture, sufficient scripture. The model you've probably heard of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Paul in Romans 15, 14 a verse you may know says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So not only are you to teach one another, you're also, you're also to admonish one another with the word of God. And this is important. Admonishing is with the word of God. This is a negative side of teaching. It means correction. It means to warn people of the consequences of their behavior. Notice, this teaching and admonishing one one another is to be done in all wisdom. In all wisdom. It takes wisdom to teach and admonish one another because it tends to be done in in an insensitive, tactless, foolish, unwise fashion. And so you need to be wise in your teaching and admonishing not truth at the expense of love or love at the expense of truth, but you're to speak the truth in love. John Blanchard says that when the Bible speaks about church unity, it speaks of unity, not at the expense of truth, but on the basis of it. So let's not also forget where we find wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the word of God makes you wise. It teaches you the right time to teach, to speak, to rebuke, and to, to admonish. So brothers and sisters, you all have a part to play in this. Giving and receiving instruction and correction always requires this quality called humility. And this is one of the ways the lordship of Christ is expressed in a local church. Embrace the word of God without reservation. And if you love the word of God, then you'll love all of it. It's teaching and it's admonish, and, and admonition. Whether it comes from a pastor, another brother or sister in Christ, or even a child. If it's from God's word and according to God's word, it's to your benefit to receive it as if from the Lord himself. So may the word of Christ dwell in and among this church. 
Lastly, the word of Christ not only changes you and shapes you, it should also affect how you worship and the songs that you sing. So what happens when the word of Christ is dwelling within the church? Worship. Not just any kind of worship, but Christ-exalting, word-centered worship. The knowledge of God should always produce emotion. It should stir you, move your hearts to singing with thankfulness. You see, even singing, we learn from Paul, is a, is a vehicle of instruction and admonition. And there's a lot written on what exactly the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs refer to. But what is clear is that singing is to be regulated and governed by the Word of God. Psalms here probably refers to the Psalms found in the Old Testament. Hymns could refer to songs of praise that exalt God and are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And spiritual songs are probably songs of personal testimony expressing truths of the grace of salvation in Christ. So taking a step back for a bit, what what is to govern and regulate singing? The Word of God. How are you to sing with thankfulness in your hearts? And who are you singing to? God. Worship is heart service, not just lip service. It's a response of thankfulness from a heart that has been changed by God. There must be a priority of the gospel, the Word of God, in your worship service, which includes singing. So the word of Christ, the gospel, the word of God is the primary means by which you're enabled to grow in Christ likeness. And this happens as the word of Christ is dwelling in and among you. So to say it again, the word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. The word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. We need to be people of the word. The church needs to be a ministry of the word. The music needs to be a ministry of the word of Christ. You need to sing songs that that elevate and exalt Christ, that are doctrinally sound, that are theologically rich. The music that you sing needs to point to Christ and declare, declare the truth of who he is and what he's done. And so you must prioritize the content of songs over the style of songs. And so, brothers and sisters, God's people need to sing God's truth. God's people need to sing God's truth, and we must provide that avenue through the the songs that we sing, content. And one way to know your commitment to God's truth is is by the songs that you sing. Your time together on Sundays ought to be word and Christ-centered, meaning that worship isn't just about you. You don't come complaining or grumbling you come as thankful people, thankful people giving thanks to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit that transforms hearts, and it's the Word and the Spirit that transforms the church. A healthy church is all about Jesus. His peace rules and reigns. His Word transforms, fills, and governs. And as head of the church, Christ is supreme. Christ is Lord, and if you love Christ, then you will love his church. And if you love Christ, then you will love his word. A church is only a church as Christ is on full display. 
It's been said that you can build a crowd. You can build a crowd in a number of ways, but you can only build the church by the word of God. It's the word and the spirit, brothers and sisters, that grows Christians and Christian community. It's not new methods. Paul has spoken against the false teaching and false teachers seeking to add to the supremacy, supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Paul's shown that you don't become more like Christ by legalism, asceticism, or mysticism. It's not new methods. Paul is focusing and highlighting the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's pressing in on your relationship with him, to fix your minds on him, to behold his beauty. And in doing so, you'll be able to put to death the lust of the flesh, mentioned in verse 5 and 8 of chapter 3. And you'll be able to put on the Christ-like characteristics of verse 12, chapter 3. In an article titled, On Worship, H.B. Charles Jr. wrote this, quote, On the way home from church, a child told her parents she did not want to go to Sunday school anymore. When asked why, she griped, because they never do anything new there. Every week it's the same thing. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. May that little child's complaint be the legitimate critique of our corporate worship services. No one should ever catch us doing something new when they attend our worship services. It should be the same thing every week, every month, every year. Jesus, 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 end quote. It's not Christ plus more that any of us need. Remember, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him, we've been made complete. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Christ is enough. He's supreme and he's sufficient, and we are complete in him. And so when the word of Christ is dwelling richly in you, it grows you individually, it grows you corporately, it affects your relationships positively, and it deepens your worship together. You'll be ruled by the peace of Christ, you'll be transformed by the word of Christ. Lastly, you will be motivated to live in the name of Christ, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul caps off this section by telling us that there should be no difference between worship and daily living. No difference between worship on Sundays and daily living the rest of the week. Your public life and private life should be the same. Sundays at church should be the same life you live all the other days of the week. So Paul, he expands worship from the church to all of life. This means you need to, two things, recognize and represent. Recognize and represent. First, recognize. You must recognize that you live your lives for another, for Christ, not for yourselves. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 17. Everything, everything or anything, whatever you do, it's an all-encompassing word. You is a personal word. Do is an action word. Word or deed, which means speech or actions, that covers everything. Another comprehensive word. And then he says, do everything. In case we missed it, it's another comprehensive term. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's been stated already 
Everything you do must be an act of worship. Everything you do must be an act of worship because Christ is all is all and in all. So you need to recognize and live with an awareness of his presence. Everything you do is under him and for him in all areas of life. So the question is, do you live with the privilege of serving Christ? Do you live with the privilege of serving Christ? This is a story you may have heard before. Ruth Graham Bell, the wife of Billy Graham, had a motto that hung above her kitchen sink, which read, Divine service conducted here three times a day. Remember, even in the routine and mundane things of life, we do it as an act of worship unto him. So not only do you recognize that you live for Christ, you must also represent Christ. You represent Christ to everyone around you. You're his ambassadors. You're to bear witness to him. In John 17, 11, Jesus prays to, the, to his father for his own. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Your unity testifies to God the Father and God the Son. In other words, your unity showcases the gospel to the world. Later in John 17, Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So your unity, your oneness says something to the world. You're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The key word there is Lord. That's the reality of who Jesus Christ is. No one makes him Lord. He is the Lord. Philippians 2.10 says that, So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so to act in someone's name means both representing him and also being empowered to do so. You're to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. First Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your lives must be lived for his name. In other words, you offer to God your lives in Jesus' name. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Romans 11.36 Everything must be done in obedience to Christ and for Christ. Finally, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfulness, if you've noticed, runs through this entire section. In verse 15, 16, and 17, we see this theme of thankfulness three times. Donald Barnhouse says, How strange that the Lord must plead with those whom he has saved from the pit to show gratitude to him. Thankful to God means thankful for who he is, his nature and character. It means that you understand what it cost Christ to purchase our salvation. Thankful means that you understand that if God didn't save you, you would still be lost in your sin with no hope. And look at the last two words of verse 17. Notice this giving thanks to God is through Christ. Brothers and sisters, everything must happen through Christ. In chapter 1, verse 16, we're told that all things were created through Christ. In chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that we're reconciled through Christ. In chapter 2, verse 15, we're told that we've all triumphed 
through Christ. Everything has gone through Christ. Creation was through Him. Reconciliation was through Him. Triumph was through Him. And now, praise is through Him too. So may you never cease to praise. Notice also, Paul says, whatever you do, do everything. Whatever you do, do everything. We should be asking Paul, what do you mean? Do and do everything. Because brothers and sisters, we can only do and do all because it's been done by Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Everything we did before God called and saved us was for our own name, our own recognition, our own glory. Before Christ, we worshipped ourselves. Christ has done everything for us, how we should live for him with everything that we are, with our life and with our breath. So if you're here or listening online and not a believer, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and you will have to give an account of your life. You stand before God, a guilty sinner who will be justly punished. And I read Philippians 2, 10 and 11 earlier, which says that when Christ returns, you will not be standing, but that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day, you will be without hope of salvation. The good news is today, you're not without hope. Jesus said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So unbeliever, you can go from never-ending death to everlasting life. You must be reconciled to God through repentance and faith. Submit your life to him, and you will be forgiven. Your heart will be changed, and you'll know the peace of Christ. You'll have eternal life, and for the first time, you will have a melody in your heart that will sing praise to your Maker. And if you're a believer, is Christ your life? Is everything you do done in the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving? A healthy church is a thankful church. It's Christ's name and glory manifested and exalted in and among you. So how do you know if you're a healthy and thankful church? The peace of Christ rules, the word of Christ dwells in you richly, and the name of Christ motivates you. And so, in conclusion, the lordship of Christ must control church life. Christ is head of the church. And like a physical body, the church has many members, but only one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us must remain in connection to the head. We must hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God, Colossians 2.19. We must be guided by Jesus and governed by his word and dependent on him for life. 
Christ is Lord and we're united to him and to one another. And so God has made us new in Christ. And so Christ ought to define us. Christ ought to define us more than anything else. Listen, union with Christ doesn't just demand a right understanding of who Christ is and who we are because of him. Union with Christ also demands a right way of living that accords with Christ and his character. His peace must be throughout the church. His word must be throughout the church. Everything you do must be done in the name of Christ. This needs to not only be expressed, but also embraced. Not only believed, but show up in the way you behave. You've received Christ, so you're to reflect Christ. And as you do, my prayer is that this church would resemble Christ more and more. And remember, you're not in this alone. We're in this together. Herman Edwards, an American football coach, he played in the NFL for 10 seasons and was also a head coach with the New York Jets and Kansas City Chiefs. And when it came to his thoughts on teamwork, he said, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not on, not the name on the back of the jersey. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Christ. We've all been called in one body. The church is not ours. It's the Lord's. And the way you maintain and protect the unity that Christ has established and that already exists because of your union with him is to make sure that Christ has his rightful place. You're all one in Christ. He's central to everything. And it's he who saves you and it's he who brings you together. His love for you establishes your love for one, for one another. And the truth is that we, we are imperfect sinners and we will fail. However, our identity is in Christ. We're chosen, holy and beloved, one with Christ. We've been raised with him. We've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We'll persevere. We will persevere until the end because no one can snatch us out of the Christ's hand or the Father's hand. And because we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from the Father's love. Nothing, not even death, will sever our union with Christ. And I can say that because believers who die are called the dead in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And because of that, even though we will fail, we can be confident the church will prevail. The sin that remains in us, the sin that remains in us, the sins that are present in the church, the relationships where the peace of Christ is not ruling, we know it ought not to be this way. But we also know that one day it won't when Christ, the Prince of Peace, returns and makes all things new. So how do you know if you're really in this together and haven't missed the point? Notice the one another's in the passage. Verse 13, are you bearing with one another? Are you forgiving one another? Verse 16, are you teaching and admonishing one, one another with the word and according to the word? The one another's show 
that you really understand what Christ has done and how he has called you in one body. Christ is Lord and he is your Lord. So brothers and sisters, the one thing that matters is the one person who binds you to himself and to each other, Jesus Christ. May the peace of Christ rule. May the word of Christ transform. May the name of Christ motivate. And in all of this, may you be marked by love and governed by truth. May you be a Christ-centered, word-centered, church of love, peace, and gratitude. I'll end with two questions. How is the church doing? And how can the church excel still more? Let's pray. Father God, we confess our hearts aren't always ruled by the peace of Christ. Forgive us for our hearts aren't always, are, aren't always filled with thankfulness. Far too often it's our will be done, not your will be done. Help us to understand more of the gospel of your son that we may continually be transformed from the inside out. Father, we were once not a people, but now we are yours, welcomed and adopted in your family. And so we thank you that you saved us and called us in one body. And we come before you having reason to be thankful. We are Christ and Christ is ours. We thank you that one day, we thank you that the one who has called us has also supplied us. In Christ, we have all things. In Christ, we're complete. And so, Father, we pray that you would convict us of Christ's lordship, supremacy, and sufficiency in such a way that it will be expressed in our lives and in the life of this church. Help us to be ruled by the peace of Christ, transformed by the word of Christ, and motivated by the name of Christ. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.